I'm glad you guys are all feeling accommodating this morning, especially because I decided that I would have you help with my introduction. And so you might have noticed on your insert there, there are some bars at the bottom, as the kids say, uh, some lyrics to A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And so as you find those and prepare to stand up and sing those words with me, I'll tell you how I first came to learn every word to this song without a chorus. Uh, Initially, that felt cruel to me that someone would write a song without a chorus in it. And how dare Martin Luther? But uh, when the 500th anniversary of the Reformation rolled around some years ago, uh, Chelsea hung the words to this hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which is based on Psalm 46. We read it together this morning. Uh, we posted it in the nursery, and so as I was rocking my children to sleep, I would try to sing to the, sort of the funky rhythm and beat that it has, and, and eventually I learned the words, and uh, they got into me in a way that's, that's really helpful, and in a way I hope uh, that they get into you eventually especially this third verse uh, on your insert there. It's right here on your insert, right there at the bottom. You see it? It It's just in quotes. I didn't really set it off. Also, you could look at page 30 in the hymnal, verse 3. This is going excellently. (laughs) All right, stalling over. We're just going to push through. Stand up. And I'm gonna, I'll start us and we can sing together. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. Indeed, with one little word does Jesus command the serpent and his servants. Jesus commands demons. You can sit down. That's our main idea this morning. Jesus commands demons. And that follows on the heels of what we learned last week, which was that Jesus commands winds and waves. Indeed, we're sort of in this section of Matthew's gospel Uh, that goes from chapter 5 all the way to chapter 11-ish, that speaks to us about Jesus's authority. See, Matthew has been marshalling an argument for us since chapter 1. He wants us to recognize that Jesus is the messianic king. He is the prince who was promised, and he lays out for us reasons why we should believe this. And uh, first thing is first, he lays out Jesus' credentials as king. He says he comes from the right family. He's a son of David the son of Abraham. Matthew wants us to see Jesus as the one who will bring blessing to all nations, Jew and Gentile alike. So he comes from the right family. We see he fulfills the right prophecies, even in his infancy. 
can kind of trace his geographical movements in chapter 2 there. He has his life under threat as a child. Looks a lot like Moses did. He goes down into Egypt. Then he's called out of Egypt. He starts to look a lot like Israel here. Out of Egypt, into the, through the waters, into the wilderness, and eventually to the mountain where he declares God's words to God's people. We also see him in the wilderness. He's tempted by the evil one, by the serpent, by Satan. And unlike Adam and Eve when they are tempted by that great serpent, Jesus does not sin. He's fit to be humanity's new Adam, our new representative before God. He is the king we need. He's got all these credentials. He fulfills the right prophecies. Indeed, he has the authority of a king. We see this in the Sermon on the Mount when he comes and he encourages all who will listen to him to enter into the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, by coming to him, the king, and pursuing holiness. Jesus, in that sermon, calls all those who will hear him to himself and to holiness. It's then he steps out of his pulpit, down from that Sermon on the Mount, that he begins to show us his authority in action with his deeds. He heals with his hand, he cleanses a leper, he takes fever away from Peter's mother-in-law. Yes, Jesus loves even mothers-in-law. And he heals the centurion's servant with a word from miles away. Such is his power. The crowds are beginning to gather around him, and yet we find Jesus isn't eager to build his social media following. He, he doesn't want to gather fans to himself by way of casual followers and likes. He's not trying to build his brand. In fact, he's not after fanfare, but after true disciples. And so when Mr., uh, what did we call him? Hold on. Mr. Hasty comes to him and says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says to Mr. Hasty, really? Because I, the Son of Man, have no place to lay my head. Another man comes and says, let me, let me uh, bury my father, and then I'll follow you. We called him Mr. Wrong Order. And Jesus says, get the order right. Leave the dead to bury their dead. Follow me. And his point is, is that discipleship has a cost that if he is to be your king, he requires to be supreme in your affections and in your life. You are to honor him as king far and above all else. And that following him is uncomfortable. He then begins to sort of uh, sift the wheat from the tares, the true disciples away from the fans. They travel to the other side of the sea. We find him in a boat where we found him last week, and a seismus megas arose, a great storm. Jesus, no place to lay his head, is asleep on the boat. Disciples in the storm, they've been led into the storm by Jesus into difficulty. You can see the connections there. Discipleship is difficult. And they come to the, Jesus and they say, Save us. He rebukes them for their immature confused faith, right? That's what we said little faith is sort of like being a little pregnant, right? It's not that you don't have faith, it's that you have a faith that hasn't developed fully and, and hasn't matured yet. They understand who Jesus is, but, but not fully. 
and they, they make that clear because Jesus calms the storm with a word and then they ask that question, verse 27, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? And we sort of answered that question last week because only God commands the seas. We held up Jesus' humanity, recognizing that his sleep in the boat points us to his sleep at his mother's breast and reminds us that he is fully man, just like you and I. He gets tired and hungry, that he has skin. If you cut him, he bled. And this week, we'll see our attention more on his deity, as demons testify to his identity. Long introduction, but I've structured your outline, which is right there on that same insert where you read the words from a mighty fortress there, around these three, I guess, three uses of the one word, behold, right? Uh, It's in your outline three times, not because I'm super clever, though maybe you think that's the case. I won't deny it if you want to accuse me of it. Uh, But you see the word behold is in verse 29, verse 32, and verse 34. And so we have built our sermon around trying to make sure we are looking at what Matthew is calling us to look at. That's what behold means. Look, look, behold. So that's your outline. Let's pray, ask for the Lord's help. We've got context, we've got outline, we've sung a little song, and now we're going to get started. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask for your help this morning. Help us to behold Jesus. And in beholding the Lord Jesus, help us to see your face and to be filled with your spirit. Help us to, by the end of our time together, uh, once more be drawn close to you and singing holy, holy, holy in our hearts. You are our God and you are good. We pray these things by your spirit In the name of Jesus, amen. Look with me at verse 28 of Matthew chapter 8. And when he, that's Jesus, came to the other side of the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs. They were so fierce that no one could pass that way. This is an interesting scene. Uh, Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee, and by the end of our narrative, he's going to get ready to turn around, get back in the boat, and then go back where he came from, right? And so one of the questions I have when I come to this text, and he arrives in verse 28 in the land of the Gadarenes, is why this trip across the sea, right? We've pointed out a, a few things already. It's to teach about his identity, who he is, his person. It's about to teach about his power, his, his work, And I think it's also to teach us about God's heart for the nations. Uh, Matthew has helped us to see throughout his gospel that this good news of this Jewish Messiah King isn't just good news for the Jews. It's good news for all nations. He signals us to this a few ways. He, He makes sure we see the Gentiles in Jesus' genealogy. Jesus has some Gentiles in his family tree. He makes sure we see the Gentile centurion exercise faith. 
makes sure that we hear Jesus' words to him in verse 11 of chapter 8. I tell you that many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Those coming from east and west, non-Jews, Gentiles, they are included, Matthew wants us to know, in the one people of God. Yes, in chapter 10, uh, Jesus is going to send his disciples out to the Jews as priority. They're going to the Jews first, but not exclusively. By the end of the gospel, we see that there is a great commission for all nations to be made disciples of the one true king. All nations are to worship the one true God. And Matthew, I think, is just sort of hinting at that again here. Jesus is just sort of hinting at that again here when he puts Jesus out of a Jewish land and into a Gentile land. He goes into the land of the Gadarenes. A Gentile land would be an unclean land. Just as Jesus healed an unclean leper back at the beginning of chapter 8, he is going to heal some unclean men. And they're, they're doubly unclean because to be demon-possessed is to be unclean. And to come out of tombs, as they do, you see there in verse 28, graveyard is an unclean place. So you've got Jesus in an unclean place among an unclean people ministering to uh, men who are like doubly unclean. We know of this Gentile land that it's super unclean. They've even got pigs, you'll see. But that doesn't deter Jesus. So we see God's heart for the nations in Jesus's geographical movements here. But I think what is most important for us to recognize is that Jesus wants us to see, Matthew wants us to see, who Jesus is. You see, Jesus comes, and these demon-possessed men can't help, can't help but come out of the tombs to him. I love that they were so fierce and, and violent that no one would pass that way. Nobody would go down that road. You don't go that way. That's where the demoniacs are. Nobody went that way except for Jesus. And then we come to our first behold, verse 29. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? What have you to do with us is not a kind greeting. It's, it's weird. Uh, it's a Greek idiom. It's like, what between us and you? It means something along the lines of, we have nothing in common, but leave us alone. Okay? Uh, and you're going, that's weird idiom. Idioms are weird. Think about some of the ones we have in English and how little sense they would make to you. Like, think about, uh, I'm feeling under the weather. What? It's a piece of cake. You know, I'm going to quit cold turkey. Like, what? The sa same thing here. It's an idiom. What between us and you? We don't have anything in common. Leave, leave us alone, O Son of God. The first, first thing to recognize before we get to their testimony about Jesus is that they oppose Jesus. They're not warmly welcoming him. They know who he is and they oppose him. Brother and sister Christian, if you are following Jesus, you ought to expect demonic opposition. 
if that strikes you as a strange thing for me to say, I would like to suggest to you that the devil has played his greatest trick on you, which is to convince you that he doesn't exist, that there are no spiritual forces of darkness to be concerned with. Don't fall for the trick. Heed Paul's words in Ephesians 6 and verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You will be opposed in this world spiritually. Stick close to Jesus. Pray. Stand and fight. Jesus is opposed by these demons, and yet they, they know him, and they recognize him. They, they call him by his proper name, O Son of God. Have you ever gotten a phone call uh, that's not for you? It's really the most annoying thing in the world. But, but your phone rings, which is, I mean, that's an inconvenience in the first place, right? Like, why didn't they just text you? And, and so your phone rings, and you've got to go through the trouble of answering the phone, which is a huge deal, and, and you pick it up, and then it's, you know, Hello, is, you know, Tina there? No. Hang up. You know, you've got, what, what do you do really? You say, I'm sorry, uh, you've got the wrong number. Yeah, that's it. That's the end of it. J Jesus doesn't correct the demons here. He doesn't tell them, you've got the wrong number because they've got the right name. They name Jesus. They identify Jesus. You see, they know the answer to the disciples' question. You see the question up in verse 27? Uh, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him, even the winds and the sea obey him? There's the answer, verse 29. Oh, son of God. They recognize Jesus as God, number one. They, they see him as God. They understand that when Jesus acts and speaks and works, God is acting and speaking and working. They understand that Jesus is God, part one. And then secondly, they understand who Jesus is in relationship to God. Now you're going, wait a minute. What do you mean as God and in relationship to God? Like, is he in relationship with himself? Yes. Remember that wonderful doctrine of the Trinity? It's not just this sort of tertiary, unimportant Christian doctrine that we keep hidden away in the closet and then every once in a while we you know, take it out and blow the dust from it and go, all right, yeah, yeah, Trinity. We believe that, but it's kind of weird. It doesn't really impact us on the day-to-day. -day. No, the Trinity is foundational because if we get God wrong, we get everything wrong. And I don't know why we do this. We hear phrases like son of God and we recognize Jesus as God, but we don't keep thinking. We don't allow it to take us into the Trinity. Right? Because Jesus is, he is God, he's our God. He also is the son of God. He's God the son. Right? He has always existed. There never was a time when the son was not. We talk about Jesus is one person with two natures. He's 
fully God. And then what happens at Christmas time is the incarnation, the enfleshment. He's fully man. So he doesn't stop being God. He takes on to himself a second nature, starts being man. And so we say the incarnation, you've heard me say this a few times now, I'm going to say it a few times more, is a miracle of addition, not subtraction. So the, the person Jesus is fully God and fully man. That's good. Now, uh, when we talk about Jesus as God the Son in relationship with the rest of the Godhead, what do, what do we mean there? We mean that God the Father has always been in relationship with God the Son, and they have loved each other together with God the Holy Spirit, the great three in one. One God, three persons. So if you were to, to sit down uh, and do a, a Q&A with God, just trying to feel him out a little bit, it might go this way. Question one, who are you? The Father. What are you? The one God. Question two, who are you? The Son. What are you? The one God. Who are you? The Spirit. What are you? The one God. As Christians, we worship one what, God, and three who's that are God together. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So when these demons recognize that Jesus is the Son of God, they're teaching us, in part, some good Trinitarian theology. They're showing us that Jesus is God, and he is in relationship with God. This is really incredible. This is what helps us to make sense of Christmas and of Christianity. The Father sends the Son by the Spirit so that we might, by faith, become sons in Christ. You understand what's happening in, in salvation, right? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have as, existed as God forever, in eternity, perfectly happy, no need of you or me or anybody. And God, because he is gracious and good, chose to create the world. And we, his creation, rebelled against him. And instead of just snuffing us all out right away, which would have been his right, good and just thing to do, he resolved, indeed he had planned to, save his people, save those who will have faith in Christ from their sins. Instead of punishing us for our sins in eternity, God the Father sends God the Son by God the Holy Spirit to become a man. Behold, virgin will conceive and bear a child and you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's Matthew 1.21. 
so that when Jesus comes as a man, as our representative, as our king, when he dies on the cross, he is dying for our sins. He's dying for the sins and the rebellion of all who will turn from their sins and trust in him. Jesus goes to the cross to save his bride. The father sends the son into the womb of a virgin by the power of the spirit so that we might be adopted as sons. You understand, when we are, when you put your faith in Jesus, when you turn from your sin, you are joined to Jesus theologically, right, by the Holy Spirit so that you are swept up into the life of the Godhead. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard. It's, it's sort of mind-bending to get your head around. But, but God loves you when you are joined to the Lord Jesus like he loves the Lord Jesus. Now, the creature-creator distinction is maintained. We don't want to slip into heresy here. But the great love of the eternal trinity comes to all who are in Christ. The life of God is in the soul of the church. Isn't that incredible? I mean, when you say, you know, Merry Christmas, I mean, what's Christmas about? God, you know, Jesus, he came. Don't, don't just think Jesus. What am I trying to say here? See better than the demons. Right? The demons say, they say, behold, or oh, Son of God. Behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? And so they recognize Jesus as God and they recognize him as Son of God in relationship with God the Father. With me? And this, this sounds complicated, but it's going to get really simple. When you see Jesus, think Trinity. I mean, very, very simply, it will, it will change how you read your Bible and, and it can change how you pray, how you think about God. Because when you see Jesus in the Bible and you think, wait a minute, he's in relationship with the Father who has planned all of this and he is doing all of this work by the Holy Spirit who is also God. Like my salvation is God's work from beginning to end. Look how much God loves me. Look at the, the one what working through the three who's. This is incredible. And some of this you already, I mean, most of this you already just know naturally if you've been in church long. Right? You, there's a reason, right? How do you pray? We pray Father, we pray to the Father. In the name of who? In the name of Jesus, by the Son. Jesus is the mediator through whom we come to the Father. And how, well, of course, we pray by the Spirit. We're animated by the Holy Spirit. You know, wow, I never knew how you know, Trinitarian my prayers were. I'm quite sophisticated. I, I, I want to put your attention here um, with the hopes of helping, helping you to see what the disciples couldn't see yet on this side of the resurrection, right? They're just going, what, what sort of man is this? And the demons are going, uh, the son of God. Oh, son of God. And so what, my goal, at least in part, well, who knows if we'll achieve it, but is to say, behold, the son of God. See Jesus, and yes, see him as God, but also see him in relationship to the rest of the Godhead. God is the gospel, that's the good news of the gospel is that you get God. You get drawn into relationship with the triune God of the universe. Because of Christmas 
and the cross and the resurrection, we have peace with God. God has become for us, and this is good, so it doesn't come from me. I got it from a book. God has become for us adoptive father, incarnate son, and outpoured Holy Spirit. God is with us. Jesus is with us. He bears our same humanity. God is in us. The Holy Spirit indwells us. We say, you know, Merry Christmas. It's good news because of what it means down the line. The cradle of Christmas is not good news without the crucifixion of Easter and the resurrection three days later. If you do not know the Lord Jesus, Christmas is not good news. In fact, it's very bad news. Because it means you have not been saved. But there is a God who lives and will judge sinners like you. That's the next thing that the demon's testimony teaches us. We are to lift our eyes up and behold the sun. We also are to behold the pigs, which teach us about the end of all who oppose Jesus. One more thing before we go there, getting excited. But before we get there, you see the demons have a good theological conception about who Jesus is. They know him, right? Maybe better than the disciples at this point. But they don't love him. Be warned, uh, Christian, especially if you've been a Christian a long time, or maybe militant atheist, there is a way that you can know the Bible and know God and, and know Jesus that is demonic. So what's the difference between really good, sound theology and demonic theology? And I, I think it's love for Jesus. The demons know him, but they hate him. It does, no, they know who Jesus is. It doesn't change how they exist. You can know Jesus with no faith. I think of Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. We say, I, I can have all knowledge, but if I have not love, it's worthless. I can untangle all ministry, ministry, mysteries, without love, it's worthless. Friend, if your theology is cold, if your theology doesn't lead to doxology, if it doesn't lead to celebration of who Jesus is, if when you behold the Son of God, you, eh, or you oppose him, your theology is not saving you. You're saying your, your faith has to be in Jesus. Uh, to, there's a difference between knowing Jesus and knowing Jesus. My prayer is that we would guard ourselves against a demonic theology. And that we would rightly see uh, theology and doxology joined together. That we look at who God is and because we know who he is, because he tells us in his word, we celebrate and we worship him. The two fuel one another. So behold the sun. All right, now, now to the pigs. Uh, beholding the pigs. And you guys are like, this was, this was the part we wanted to get to. Verse 29. 
they say, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the appointed time? The question's quite revealing uh, because it teaches us that the demons recognize they are on a clock, that they are on death row, if you will, that they have an eternity of judgment and torture coming to them. And they see Jesus walking around, and Jesus is a little bit like, um, have you ever heard the, the nursery rhyme, Mary had a little lamb? Wherever Mary went, the lamb was sure to follow. It's a little bit like that. Wherever Jesus goes, the kingdom is sure to come. And so wherever Jesus is going, these, the, the new heavens and the new earth sort of, sort of like breaks in through the cracks in the curse. He begins to heal diseases. He stills storms with a word. And he's going to cast out demons and raise the dead. They understand, like Jesus is showing up and they're like, wait a minute, you're here already? And he's like, yes, the kingdom is already, but it's not yet here in its fullness. And so I'm not going to cast you into the lake of fire yet, but I am going to give an object lesson to all who will read these words down the road. Jesus doesn't answer their question right away, right? They say, have you come here to torment us before the time? That teaches us that there will be a judgment. And then the demons make a suggestion to Jesus. I do not know why. You can find myriad of suggestions. Why do these demons, they're going to ask to, be, to go into the pigs. Why do these demons ask to go into the pigs? And I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe they don't want to go into the abyss. Maybe they don't want to go into that spiritual prison that we're told about in Jude that the sons of God from early in Genesis are thrown into. Uh, maybe that, you know, Jesus doesn't answer. He says, have you come to torture us before the time? Maybe they think, oh, he has come to torture us. And so like, the pigs, that's a good option, the pigs. I don't know. They want to go into the pigs. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Verse 30, now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. One little word shall fell them. Jesus sends the demons into the pigs, and the pigs proceed down the bank and into the sea, where they drown. Now this, this is a picture we're a little bit familiar with, and I'm going to just bring this up so I don't forget it later, but notice he's healing these two men that are possessed by demons. That's really, Jesus loves these guys. And he loves them more than the pigs that he's going to send into the sea. There's going to be huge economic costs. But these lives are worth more than those pigs. So he sends the demons into the pigs. The pigs go in. And, and I think for me, anyhow, I'll, I'll read through this section of Scripture and go, all right, cool, you know, keep it moving. But this really must have been a horrific scene. Imagine you're just, you're just like a bystander. You don't, like Jesus is over there. You kind of see him. And the pigs are over here. And then all of a sudden, you just you hear sort of cracking through the wind. Mark tells us there was about 2,000 pigs. So you hear those 2,000, what's 2,000 times 4? Somebody, 6,000 times 4? I don't know. Uh, 
a lot of thousands of, of hooves. I'll do math later. And, and you just hear the and then the splashing and the squealing. I can't do a pig. But, but they're squealing and they're thrashing. And then silence and floating. Pig corpses all across the sea. Be a hellish scene. That's exactly the point. It's exactly the point. Jesus will judge. And so he sends these demons into the pigs and ultimately into the sea as a preview of their final destruction. We are to recognize this horrible scene and I think also be drawn to Jesus' power and recognize his authority to command demons, but also I think it should, it should cause us to shiver a little bit, <laughs> that it would lead us to repentance, that, that we would behold the pigs and turn from our sins and trust in Christ lest we end up like the pigs. It's uh, really interesting, in Hebrew thought, the sea represents a place of destruction and chaos and of evil. That's where monsters come from and Leviathan. And so in one sense, Jesus sends the demons back where they belong. But in another sense, like he is just giving us a preview of the lake of fire. It really is interesting in the new creation. Uh, there, sometimes you read this and I'll get questions like, it says there's no sea here and also it says there's no night in the new creation, but I kind of like water and I also like the nighttime. I like to look at the stars. Does that mean those things aren't going to be uh, in the restored earth? Um, no. <laughs> uh, the sea is a symbol for all that is evil. And the point is, is in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more crying, no more pain, no more diseases, no more demons, no more death. All that which is evil, you, can't, you might look for it, but you can't find it. There is no sea. There is no evil. Same thing with darkness. It stands for evil. There's not going to be any darkness there. Not be any evil. But there is a river of life that makes glad the people of God. And there is a lake of fire. This connection between the two places of water, the sea and the lake, is one that comes to my mind when I read this passage and I think of the torment of demons and the end of the pigs. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever. I also think, as I said, this is a warning for us. It should make us shiver. We should be led towards repentance. Because in Revelation, all those who do not trust in Jesus Christ, all those who hate Jesus, all those who insist on ruling themselves instead of obeying the word of God, they end up in the lake of fire with Satan and demons and all the rest of the evil things in the world. John says it this way in verse 8 of chapter 21, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, 
sorcerers, idolaters, and all the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. My non-Christian friend, there is no third way. You are either with Jesus or you are against him. There's no third way and the final judgment will come. Justice will roll down like waters. Smoke will billow upward from the lake of fire forever and ever as the redeemed celebrate the end of evil with a thousand hallelujahs. I encourage you to find yourself celebrating with the redeemed rather than in the smoke of the damned. Turn from your sin and trust Christ. Behold the pigs. Behold the pigs and repent, and also behold the pigs and be comforted. I'm not going to spend a ton of time here because we did a few weeks ago in Kings, but be comforted. God orders evil. The demons can't do anything or go anywhere apart from the permission of Jesus. The devil is on a leash. He cannot do anything apart from the decree of God. And one day his, his leash will be turned into a noose. But even this day, this gives us confidence that whatever comes to us passes first through the hand of God. Sometimes we might not understand why or how, but we can always trust God's heart. God is not the author of evil, but he does order and control it. He means it. He uses it for good. It's that way throughout the Bible. Evil men intend evil deeds to bring about evil, and God uses their evil for good. From Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery to Judas selling Jesus out to the cross. Mean it for evil, God means it for good. Years went by for Joseph. He had to spend a whole lot of time in the pit before he was raised to the right hand of the king. Indeed, Jesus had to go into the grave before he was raised to the right hand of God to sit the throne of David. And yes, Christian, there may be times in your life where you are in the pit, where you feel stricken, smitten, and afflicted. But you can look back to the cross and go, my Lord Jesus Christ was stricken, smitten, and afflicted, and he is raised. Men mean this for evil, but God will use it for good. And you might not be able to see it at the time. You might not be able to see it until you are on the other side of your life and in the presence of God. But he is using all things for your good and his glory, Christian. Behold the pigs and be comforted. God is in control. Trust him. The pigs drown. And that takes us to the response of the city. Verse 33, the herdsmen fled. Going into the city, 
and they told everything, especially, or including, what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, there's our third one, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. You can giggle at verse 33. So, so the people that are responsible for these couple thousand pigs, uh, they hurry up and they go into the city and they make sure to tell everybody just what happened. This is not our fault. Right? Like, it wasn't one of those, like, they had, like, it's been 301 days since we had an accident at work and, you know, taking it down to zero. Like, this is our fault. No, no, they want to make it very clear this is Jesus' fault. We could, we could probably write the headlines. The Jewish man sinks swine. Thousands lost. And it stirs everybody up. This whole village or city, they, they've experienced huge economic loss as the result of 2,000 pigs. I mean, we don't operate this way, but livestock at that time equals money, right? So just imagine, you know, I don't know how much a pig was worth then, but thousands of dollars just <laughs> going into the sea and disintegrating. They're upset. And so, behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Notice this connection. So look back up at verse 28, and you'll see the two demon-possessed men met him, right? Coming out of the tombs, they met him. They met Jesus. And here we have the people coming out of the city to, what, meet Jesus. Uh, the demons, they beg Jesus to send him into the pigs, verse 31. And then the people here, verse 34, uh, beg Jesus to leave their region. It really is interesting, isn't it? They see this work that Jesus has done, and they're not worried about these two men who have been set free from demon possession. They're worried about their money. And because they're worried more about their mammon than they are about men, and even their own souls, they come to Jesus in a fear that causes them to beg him, as the demons do, to leave us alone. Remember the idiom. Leave us alone. And Jesus, you'll see in verse 1 of chapter 9, obliges. He gives them what they want. Be careful what you wish for. One of the ways God's wrath is expressed in the Bible is by giving people over to exactly what they want, allowing them to pursue their sinful passions and desires. It's all through Romans and elsewhere, but let me read you from Romans 1. God gave them up, gave them over, to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. And then verse 28 of chapter 1, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind 
to do what ought not to be done. Do you want Jesus to leave you alone? And there's a path that ends in destruction. Sometimes God judges by giving us just what we think we want. They beg Jesus to leave their region. Behold the city, begging Jesus to leave and behold the city, rejecting Jesus. Jesus redeems these two men, and because he does that, he is rejected by these Gentiles. Just as Jesus loves all kinds of people, he is rejected by all kinds of people, Jew and Gentile alike. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life, John 3.16. And yet how often we forget to read John 3.19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light, because their works were evil. Jew and Gentile and Rome, everyone conspires together to extinguish the light because of their love for darkness. Jesus comes into the womb of a virgin so that he can call his people out of the grave. A people he knows will be among those hammering nails through his hands and his feet. Jesus is rejected. Isaiah 53 sort of been a key for this whole section since verse 17. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Men come out of the tombs and Jesus gives them life. This is the story of every Christian in this room. Heard the gospel, and Jesus plucked you from your spiritual grave and gave to you eternal life. And that eternal life that you have now, it anticipates that day when Jesus will return from heaven and call forth all of his people out of the tombs, well and redeemed. In the interim, whether you are absent from flesh and present with the Lord, or whether you are being spiritually opposed and being opposed by demons and men and women, I want you to take heart and remember that Jesus Christ rules the world 
He has defeated death. And he will end evil. But when you are experiencing rejection because you follow the rejected king, remember that crucifixion ends in resurrection. And sing joyfully in your heart as you await the return of the king who commands demons and even death. Sing. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Go, Jesus says. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and died in the waters. Such is the end of evil. Such is the power of our king. The one who came at Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love. We, we thank you that in your infinite wisdom, you sent Jesus, your son, to come to earth by the power of the Spirit so that he might live the life that we should have lived, perfect life, and that he might die a substitutionary death for us. Lord, thank you for the good news of the gospel. Because your son died beneath the wrath that should have been ours, we can live. Thank you that he didn't stay dead, but is risen. And that all who trust in him will also rise by the power of your spirit. What great news. How marvelous, how wonderful it is that you have saved us and brought us into relationship with yourself, Father, Son, and Spirit. Lord, we thank you for these things and we pray 